you will notice the word that characterizes this particular book is the word suffering. When we understand the people to whom the Apostle Peter is writing, we can understand something of their suffering. You, are not, you and I are not suffering as we should be, I believe I can safely say, as believers in Christ. I believe if we suffered a little bit more, we would be more on the ball for the Lord, and our lives would be more in separation from the world that surrounds us. But we don't suffer for our testimony. We might be ostracized. We might be set aside. People may not want to visit with us. They might not want us to visit them. But as far as suffering is concerned, we don't know a thing about it. And I th do think it would be a good thing if the church went through a, s a special series of sufferings before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, in order that our hearts might be warmed for him, in order that we might see that uh, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he uh, has a right to our loyalty, and he has a right to our uh, spirituality and we find that we're so divided in this world today that the world gets too much of what we have and what we are and the Lord seems to get so little of it that here in first Peter chapter 3 it begins with suffering you will notice in verse 1 chapter 4 rather first Peter chapter 4 and verse 1 for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves likewise with the same mind for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in a lifetime, the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffices, uh, suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For, this, for for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might uh, be judged according to men in the flesh, that live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity or love among yourselves, for charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to each one of us. I think perhaps this evening we'll start with verse 12 and finish this fourth chapter. We have to keep on reminding us, of course, as to the people to whom the Apostle Peter is writing, here we have a word for all believers of any dispensation. It's an inter interdispensational type of teaching that we have here, but especially those of the dispersion, a dispersion that uh, was created not for economic uh, reasons, as some people would tell us, but for political and religious reasons. Uh, they could be considered by Rome as being rebels, and we hear a lot of rebels in the uh, Central America and other places like that today where people uh, disobey the 
accepted government and rise up against it. And these people could be considered by Rome as rebels since they looked for a kingdom other than the Roman Empire and they looked for a king other than the uh, emperors of Rome. And they could have been well taken for uh, uh, rebels uh, during that particular time. A lot of them, of course, left uh, the land of Canaan, which was under Roman rule, and they went into Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and other Gentile territories in order to escape the Roman heel. And we find that while they were there, they couldn't get along. I'm talking about now the, the remnant among them. We find that the believers, the remnant among them, could not get along with those Jews who did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not accept the amnesty that was offered to them by Peter. And so we find they had a good deal of trouble among themselves. They weren't suffering so much trouble uh, among the Gentile nations uh, that they had adopted as a place to live for a century or two or three. But they, their trouble was with the uh, Jews who had heard the gospel of the kingdom but who rejected the king of that gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And therefore, we find that uh, they made it very hard for those few among them who represented the remnant, who represented the believers of that wonderful message of amnesty. Their suffering was not so much as rebels, but as believers in Christ. Remember that. And uh, so we find that if we suffered in this world by our particular testimony as believers in Christ, our testimony would have to improve greatly, I believe, to become sufferers. And yet we find that we are living in a society in a, a time when people are very tolerant with all kinds of religious beliefs, and this tolerance has not been too much in favor of the believer in Christ because they've learned to be tolerant with us too, and so we have ceased to be an object of any particular suffering through the times that we are presently living. These people suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. That's one thing I want to bring out to you and remind you of. We had that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You ought to underscore that and uh, bring in a marginal note over to 1 Peter when you read about the sufferings that they went through and also in the book of James because the people in, in, to whom the apostle uh, James writes are the same people to whom the Apostle Peter writes and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14 uh, read verse 13 too you have this statement or these statements for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us ye received it uh, not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe for ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered uh, like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So you see that they suffered a good deal at the hands of the Jews who were their countrymen, who were brothers and sisters in the Jewish race with them. But there was a great separation between them because some had accepted Christ as the Messiah, the true Messiah, but the majority had not accepted him as such. Now, to the nation of Israel was given the message of the amnesty through Peter, which was a message of salvation that was conditioned on repentance and water baptism. This is the truth that we saw last week in chapter 3 and verse 21, 
where it says the like figure whereunto even baptism also doth now save us. So we showed you how that for a period of time in human history there was a time when God was saving men and women by these two conditions that they were to comply to, uh, comply with, and we find that they were repentance and water baptism, but only for that short period of time. God is not now saving people by water baptism at all. Water baptism, in fact, does not belong in the Christian uh, doctrines which have been given to us through the Apostle Paul. But those two conditions were there, and there were those who were willing to follow those two conditions and become uh, uh, Christ followers as uh, Christ the King, not Christ the head of the body, because through the Apostle Peter they never got the gospel of God's grace, but they did get the gospel of the kingdom. Now those who accepted this offer of salvation were reminded of the sufferings of Christ. Those are the people that the Apostle Peter is really writing to. And that's the reason why he tells them that they are to be armed with the same mind uh, just as Christ suffered, so they are to expect nothing but suffering in their lives. So it's a message to Jews who had accepted Christ as their king, and their resurrected king, and uh, we find it was very important for them to believe in that resurrection and to believe in Christ as being the Messiah. So they had accepted the salvation, uh, and those who had accepted it were reminded of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they should prepare, be prepared for such sufferings themselves. Now we don't go around trying to tell people that we want you to be prepared for this fact that if you accept Christ as your Savior, you're really going to suffer a lot in this life. There isn't that that we have to warn people of at all, because this world has become very lenient, and we have uh, been very attracted to the world, and between the combination of the two, we find that we can get away with suffering as far as that's concerned. We don't have to worry about that. But I do say it would be a lot better for believers if they knew something about suffering for Christ's sake. But the fact that people don't suffer for Christ's sake is what keeps them in the dark concerning a lot of truths about the Apostle Paul and the ministry that he has given to us connected with the revelation of the mystery of this dispensation of grace. Now the Christian church is likewise exhorted to have the mind of Christ. Now notice verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. This is addressed to Jewish believers of the gospel of the kingdom. It says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now when you go over to Philippians chapter 2, you will find the apostle Paul is addressing uh, believers at Philippi, and he is mentioning also the mind of Christ and how that by our taking the mind of Christ, because here speaking to the uh, Philippians, he is speaking to us. Or through the Philippians, he is addressing himself to us. It says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now you will notice it's a mind of self-abnegation. And that is the mind that most of us don't want to have anything to do with. We want uh, to please ourselves and to exalt ourselves and get the most of what the world has to offer to us at any cost. And, at cost, and as far as self-abnegation is concerned, there's very little of that type of spirit in us. But it goes on to say, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Nothing was more shameful for a Jew than to be hung on a cross, and the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to this most shameful type of death that was possible of a Jew to take. And especially knowing the fact that he was in the form of God, that is, he was God the Son from a past eternity, but he became Emmanuel, that is, God with us. He became a God incarnate in the flesh, in order that in that body of flesh he might submit to the command of God the Father, and that is to die for the human race. We find it is a command because uh, in John chapter 10 we find that he was obedient to, uh, to the cross. And that's just like in Philippians chapter 2. But in both cases we find that it was a step of obedience on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ that permitted him to take a body with which he could have gone immediately into the presence of God after living 33 and a half years of this life. He did not have to go to the cross and humiliate himself to the extent that he actually did by taking upon himself the death of the cross. But the Lord Jesus went because he knew that it was the Father's expressed desire for him to do this. And he was obedient to the Father's will. It was only by that step of obedience that he could get uh, uh, or provide redemption for us and make it possible for us to be saved for all eternity. So it says in this verse that these Jewish people are to arm themselves with the same mind. You and I are also to arm ourselves with the mind of self-abnegation because that is the spirit that you see the Lord Jesus Christ assuming in those verses in Philippians chapter 2. And then it goes on in verse uh, 2. It says that he no longer, or, or rather the balance of that fourth verse, for he that hath suffered, uh, fourth chapter verse 1, pardon me, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his, li of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now, there is one principal reason for suffering and that is that when one accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, we become new creatures in Christ. When these people believe the message that Peter gave them, it was the message of the Word of God. And it was by the Word of God, according to James 1 and 18, that those people were saved. And according to 1 Peter 1, 23, that these people were saved. It was through the preaching of the Word which was believed by them, and uh, they were saved or born again. And when a person is born again, we find that they become new creatures in Christ. And having become such, they have accepted the p power over sin and of the flesh. And so it's not necessary to live as they formerly did. And that's the message of verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the lust of the flesh, uh, to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of your life, that means that the time in your life when you and I were unsaved, or when these Jews were unsaved, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wines, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. If you want to read the history of the people of Israel in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, you will see the depths to which those people degraded themselves. They wanted to live like Gentiles. They wanted the idols of the Gentiles. They worshipped the host of heaven. And they worshipped animals. And they went to the very lowest depths, we might say, of religious performances. 
and setting aside what they knew about God and how that God, the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, was the, was the one that was revealed to the nation of Israel and should have been the object of their worship and their affection. But it was not so. And Second Kings and Second Chronicles gives us a history of those poor people, the people of Israel, in their rejection of the truth. So we again say that one principal reason for suffering in the life of a person who accepts Christ as Savior is this, that in accepting Christ as Savior, he becomes a new creature, and in becoming a new creature, he has received power over sin and over the flesh. I want to read to you something about what Paul says about us. Romans chapter 6, please. I want to read a few scattered verses in Romans chapter 6. If I were to tell you what I think Romans chapter 6 is all about, I would tell you that I believe it's a chapter that gives you the fruits of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual baptism. It speaks about baptism, and a lot of people see water in it when they look at Romans chapter 6, but there is no water in Romans chapter 6 because the outcome of that particular baptism is, uh, is the, uh, the spiritual benefits that we receive by being associated or, yes, associated with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, linked up with him in life uh, by the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, he, this is what Paul is saying now about members of the body of Christ. Peter is writing to members of the Hebrew church, those who believed in Christ as king. We have believed in Christ as Savior and head of the body, and we are called to a heavenly calling. And to us he writes this, Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Now the old man is the old nature that you and I came into the world with, and that the body of sin might be destroyed. In other words, that this body might no longer become a body of sin. Now that's all you can expect from the unconverted. They can be very wonderful people. They can be preaching. They can be taking up the offering in church. They can be Sunday school superintendents. And they can be the best men in this world. But if they are only Gentiles, if they are only unsaved people, if they only have one depraved Adamic nature, then all that they do is sinful in the sight of God. And that's why God really says about all of them, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, if we want to, our, our physical bodies to cease to being the body of sin or the body that the devil is going to use in causing us to sin, well, the only way that we can is by baptism with the Holy Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit's baptism into the body of Christ. And then we receive the divine nature and we receive the power over sin and over death and our bodies don't have to be running at the command of Satan all the time, but you master that body of yours as to where you are going to go, what you are going to do, what you are going to read, who your friends are going to be. That's all mastered by the Holy Spirit who indwells that body now. Now when you look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, and it says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, uh, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we often try to show that uh, the word uh, likewise, or the word reckon rather, is a faith word because that means that I am to assume the fact that I am now dead to sin. I don't see this death. I don't see these things. These are intangible blessings of being associated with Christ by way of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
But it says, reckon ye also, put it to your account. Just say this to yourself, this is true of me, in spite of the fact that you can't see it as a uh, truth that you can handle with your hands. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, that is, unto the practice of sin. We don't practice sin. We can sin, and we do sin, but we don't live practicing sin. And those who practice sin are not saved but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore because of this fact. Don't let sin reign in your immortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. What are you going to do this week that is nothing else but a sign of obedience to some lustful pleasure that Satan has put into your mind and that you are going to follow and you are going to obey? We like the flesh just a little bit too much, don't we? We have too much of it to like. And we find that we all carry that flesh right until the day of our death and uh, our, until the rapture. And then we'll be free from that flesh for good. And uh, we won't have that sinful Adamic nature any longer. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't, let it, uh, uh, don't allow it to be on the throne don't allow it to be talking to you as though you were its subject and that you had to do everything that sin commanded you to do. And therefore it says that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. That's a lovely portion of scripture. And then verses 18 to 22, look at those. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, we are free from the practice of sin, of those who are saved by the grace of God. And one way to show it is to master or to be master of your own uh, destiny as far as day-to-day -day life is concerned. You are not going to accept the suggestions of the enemy. You are going to do what you believe uh, would be right in which God would be glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Now notice in verse 18, it says, being then made free from sin. We are made free from sin in virtue of the fact that we have been born again. Now, before we were free from sin, we were free from righteousness. But we are not free from doing righteousness now. Now we are, we have the ability, but because of the divine nature, to do things that are righteous in the sight of God. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things wherein ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, is, but now being made free from sin, and is become this. Uh, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What a wonderful grouping of scriptures we have in Romans chapter six. This ought to be memorized. It ought to be devoured by all of us if we want to know something of what God expects and of the power that he has given each one of us to overcome sinful pleasures and to be master of the situation ourselves and the power of the Holy Spirit rather than to be mastered by sin, which the Bible says is impossible in those who are saved by the grace of God. 
at least we don't want to give the appearance of being mastered by sin, always running and doing what sinful suggestions might be made in our hearts. So when you go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2, it says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Uh, there is a scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 I would like you to look at because there we find that the Ephesians are addressed, addressed as what they once were, just simple, unconverted Gentiles. And that's what we once were. Now we would like to see if there has been any change in, uh, in our life or whether we can expect a change in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse uh, 2, uh, verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened or made alive. Now he's talking to those who are alive in Christ. And he says, Who are dead in trespasses and in sin. So prior to becoming alive in Christ, we have no life uh, as far as God is concerned. We're dead spiritually. No matter how religious we might be, no matter how many times we might have been baptized, no matter how much money we have paid to a church or some good organizations, uh, no matter what we have ever done for the benefit of mankind, we were dead to God, and we needed life, and that life is the life of Christ. Now in verse 2, the Apostle Paul is referring these people to the lives they once lived before they were saved. It says, where in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You see, that's what once ruled us in our lives before we were saved. But now it says, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. And when he said we, I think he is including himself to show that he also walked after the flesh before he was saved. Talking about Paul. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath even as others. You will have choices to make tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and as long as you are going to be here alive as a human being. Your choices will have to be uh, made by you as an individual. You will be responsible for the choices you make. And we find that we don't have to make a choice to satisfy the flesh constantly. We find that we can make a choice that's going to be pleasing to God. Therefore, when you get into 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, it says... For the time past of your life may suffice, suffice, uh, uh, may suffice us to have brought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wines, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now a lot of these Jews who were living with the remnant in these Gentile territories by virtue of the fact that they did not believe God and they did not accept the message of the Apostle Peter that Christ had been raised from the dead to sit upon David's throne. We find the very fact that they refused that message of amnesty made them to live more like Gentiles in these territories where they were. And we find that probably a lot of them went over to the various things that they were holding for the benefit of the community and things like that. They were one with the Gentile world, living in lasciviousness and lusts and so on. But this little handful of believers are told by these people, now look, you once did that, now you don't have to do that any longer. 
You have the power of the Spirit within you. You have been born again. And you don't have to live like other Gentiles or like Jews who are trying to live like sinful Gentiles. They're going to talk about you if you withdraw yourself and be prepared for that. Because that's part of the suffering. And that's some suffering you and I are not uh, 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 experiencing this day in, in the time that we are now living. But it says, wherein they think it strange that she ran not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. I want you to look at a scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. In the book of Hebrews, we find that Paul is the writer, and we don't have to worry about whether he was or not. But the writer brings before us, uh, brings before those Jews, and they are the same Jews. They are, he's bringing before them the kind of uh, life and the change in their life that was wrought by their accepting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 32, it also shows a change in the life. And I want to ask you, are you satisfied with the change that's taken place since you were saved so that you can boldly say, I'm saved by the grace of God, I've been born again, the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I'm going on to eternal glory. Hebrews 10:32 says, But call to remembrance the former days. The former days are again the days like in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. The days of a time past before one was saved. They call to remember the for, remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions partly whilst you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. Now that would remind us of what a person would become among the remnant if by his testimony to the unsaved Jews in these Gentile territory, uh, territories, perhaps one Jew might say, oh yes, I do see now what, uh, what our folks are rejecting when they reject Christ as the Messiah. I accept him as my Messiah. And uh, repentant and being baptized in water, he too was born again. All right, now it tells you here the great fight of afflictions that took place as soon as Christ was accepted by these particular Jews. They were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, not only on the part of the Gentiles, but mostly on the part of their fellow citizens. Uh, the people who were Jews like them, only they were the unconverted Jewish element. And partly while you became companions of them that were so used, they took their side immediately with the believing remnant as opposed to the unbelieving uh, crowd of Jews who rejected Christ, and there the price was being paid. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds. You see, they took part with the Apostle Paul, and when they showed their affections for the Apostle Paul, the affliction started, of course, or became increasingly worse. And they took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Now, the spoiling of your goods doesn't mean moldy bread or rotten eggs or something like that, but the spoiling means robbing. They robbed them of their personal possessions. They might have come in and taken their furniture away as far as that's concerned. They might have burned down their houses and so on. But it says that their attitude was a wonderful attitude. They took joyfully the spoiling or the robbing of their goods, knowing in yourselves, or they knew in themselves, that they have in heaven 
a better and an enduring substance. My, what a wonderful thing to encourage a person to take a definite stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not going to be here for all eternity. We're only here for a short time, and we might just as well live to the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, he says in verse uh, 5 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? You and I have a judgment day coming. We are not going to be punished as far as punishment for sin is concerned. Christ took that for us. That we will suffer loss of a reward, which may be in the form of a crown, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Every one of us who are believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the coming day. And all of those who die unsaved will have to stand before Christ, who is the judge of all the world, at the great white throne judgment, which is given to us in the closing words of Revelation chapter 20. We all have a judgment to face. We're going to give an answer why we did not yield to the Spirit and why we yielded to the flesh when we were saved and had the power over sin and flesh such as we have. And the unconverted are going to remember at that time the opportunities they have had to accept, to have accepted Christ, to have been saved by the grace of God, and they lost their opportunities, they rejected the Savior, and they will be banished from God for all eternity. Then in verse uh, 6 of 1 Peter 4, we have a verse that's a rather strange verse. And with this verse, I believe I'll have to close. It says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now here we have suggested the very ultimate in suffering, and that is martyrdom. There were a lot of those Jews among the remnant who died as the price to be paid for their witness to the uh, Saviorhood and to the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are not living in those times today, but there were times when believers were flung to the lions, and we find that there has been, been many ways by which uh, believers have met their death in past, uh, in, in past uh, centuries. Since the, since the first century. The church has gone through some terribly dark days and Roman Catholicism has not been afraid to hand it out to those who are opposed to Romanism. But they are not the only ones. We find that Satan was at work for centuries in putting to death any person that named the name of Christ. Now, men in the flesh have judged these people who have been martyred as unfit for this world of ours and therefore they felt free to take their life. That's what's created the martyr uh, in the individual. Uh, it's like Cain and Abel. We find two men, they got to the right age, they could now uh, uh, build an altar and show their uh, thoughts and their beliefs concerning God, whether God was the God of creation, a God of redemption, or whether he was a ha hard taskmaster. Cain and Abel, you build your altars and you put on your alter what you think about God. All right, we find that Abel brings the firstlings of his flock, which is an animal sacrifice, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. He was reflecting really how the garments got to be provided for his parents, Adam and Eve, because when they were found to be naked, God provided garments of skins, and skins, of course, come from a living animal which had to die in order to provide the garment. Now, are Cain and Abel going to accept him as the God of redemption? Well, Abel does because he brings the firstling of his flock. 
But what about uh, Cain? We find that Cain brings the best fruits that he could possibly find. He worked hard to produce these fruits because the ground had been cursed. And I don't know whether he knew very much about agriculture at that time, but the ground was only recently cursed, so it was at its best as far as productivity is concerned. And I believe that altar had fruit upon it that you and I have never had eyes to see. We have never seen the kind of fruits that could have been raised back in those days. And that really was a beautiful picture. On Abel's altar we have a dying lamb, nothing else but blood, and who likes to look at blood? But as far as Cain was concerned, he brings something that was beautiful. And if you brought the world around the two altars, they would say, my, how does Cain, uh, how does Abel have the nerve to offer, offer that smelly blood? And that uh, putrefying sacrifice that he has, has, has their dead animal. And they would come over to uh, Cain's altar and say, isn't that a, a wonderful grouping together of fruit? And what a beautiful display. Uh, Cain must have wonderful thoughts about his God, but as far as Abel is concerned, well, it's hard to think of what he thinks about his God. But now we find that it's Abel that's accepted by God, and it's Cain that is rejected. And Cain is rejected by virtue of his offering, and Abel is accepted by virtue of his offering. Cain looks at Abel and he says, you're not worth living here anymore, and he takes his life from Abel. Abel becomes a martyr. And because there was somebody who judged him, and it was his brother Cain. Cain judged him as being unworthy to live in such a wonderful world where anybody has the right to offer whatever they want to God. And then God steps into the picture, and he rejects Cain, and shows to Cain that Cain is unworthy of this world of ours. He has given Abel, through death, a better place, a better environment by far, in which to, li to live a life that will never end. But as far as Cain is concerned, God sets a mark on Cain, and we find that he's a marked man, and there's no record in the Bible that he ever got to, got to be saved. And as far as his record in the book of Hebrews is concerned, there's no indication that Cain ever changed his mind about it. But there is a fact. We find that in this verse it says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. Abel is dead by virtue of his brother's judgment of him as not being worthy of living in this scene. Think of all of the men and the women that have met martyrdom by virtue of their testimony to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody in the world had to judge them for their testimony and say that's unworthy of our society let's get rid of them and they got rid of them and they became martyrs only to be transported into a better place where they could live their life unhindered in a real sense of the word where it would not be hindered by the flesh and by sin and by Satan because they would be free from Satan from then on out and so it's a lot better to be a martyr and having died for a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ than to have been a living one and then find yourself judging one that might bring about his martyrdom. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. And then what does it say? But live according to God in the spirit. And isn't it nice that, they, that these martyrs, they died only be, to be taken into a better and a fuller sphere of life according to God. That's a lovely little expression. This is God's estimate. This is what God was pleased to do in spite of man's judgment, 
in spite of Cain's judgment on Abel that took Abel's life, God judged that condition and brought Abel into a better sphere where that life could be lived to its fullest. What a wonderful thing. Well, time has gone by and we'll start with verse 7 this evening. But I hope you see that if you are saved by the grace of God, there's a little suffering to be expected in your life. But it's not going to come if you keep your mouth shut about the Lord Jesus. If you let people know what the Word of God is, how it's to be rightly divided, what the Lord Jesus Christ is to your soul, and have a testimony for Him, give out an occasional gospel tract, and be numbered among those who will publicly witness for the Lord Jesus, there will be some suffering, but nothing like what's taken place in centuries past in the church since the first century up until at least the 16th, 17th century. What an awful lot of people have died as martyrs in those times. But arm yourself with the mind of Christ who suffered, not for his own sin, but he suffered for righteousness' sake. And if you are suffering for a testimony for Christ, it's for righteousness' sake. It's for good and not for evil, which is a lot to be uh, enjoyed as far as uh, individuals are concerned. If we suffer, we'll take it gladly because the Lord Jesus did. He suffered for us, the just for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Why not make up our minds that we are going to be set free from sin and become servants to righteousness, for which we might suffer a little, unless things change drastically, it only be a little. So you're not asked to do very much for the Lord these days. People were asked to do a lot more in the past, and I hope we're going to be asked to do a lot more before the coming of the Lord, before he comes in rapture to take us to be with himself. Because then I think we'll be able to see the difference between those who are and those who are not. Those who profess and are saved because they possess, and those who profess and are not saved because they don't possess Christ as personal Savior. May the Lord bless his word to each one of us this morning for his name's sake. I believe that God has given them up. And all they talk about is the Christian, the Christian, or the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, and beginning at verse 7. We left off with verse 6 this morning, and so we'll begin with verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, I th think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding glory, uh, with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, and on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 
For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. May the Lord bless his word to us. Verse 7 is a wonderful verse, but you have to understand it, I think, in the light of verses 12 and 17. All three go together. You might want to form a little uh, chain, uh, a link between those three verses in your Bible. Because in verse 7 it says that the end of all things is at hand, and I believe that the Apostle Peter is prophesying the end of uh, Israel's relationship with God for the present. Only temporary, of course, but the end has lasted these almost 2,000 years. And then the, the time will come when they will be restored into the good favor of God again in the future, but not until the church has run its course. And so I think that's how you are to look at verse 7, that the end of all things is at, is at hand, looking forward to 70 A.D. And then in verse 12 it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And I think that's looking forward to the same thing, to 78, <coughs> which is going to be a terrible time of trial for the people of Israel, especially the remnant. And then lastly in verse 17 it says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, the house of God, in uh, connection with Peter's epistle, of course, is, is the people of God, the Israelites. And the nation of Israel was always the house of God. Of course, there was that uh, physical building that was called the temple, and then there were synagogues as well. Uh, there was Herod's temple in the day of our Lord Jesus that was destroyed in 70 A.D., and then there was Solomon's temple, of course, uh, several hundred years ago. But uh, that was called also the house of God. You remember the words, uh, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And so a building is the house of God, but also the people of God is the house of God. I want you to see that in the book of Hebrews, going back to the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. We find there that the apostle Paul, if he is the writer, I should stop saying that I suppose, but we like to think that there are internal and external evidences to the authorship of Paul in that particular book. And we find here in verse uh, 5 of Hebrews chapter 3, it says, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? So that's not the building Herod's temple or Solomon's temple, even though that was called the house of God because that was a physical place on earth into which God was pleased to take up his residence, as it were. God does not take up his residence in buildings which we call churches today. It's too bad that we are misled by the most of all the clergy in Christendom today because the building that we use to meet in is called uh, God's house which is uh, not according to the scripture at all. We find that God's house on this earth was the temple, Herod's temple or Solomon's temple, and in the future the millennial temple, the Ezekiel's temple. And uh, we find that then the people of Israel were the house of God. 
And today there is no such thing as the house of God. There is the body of Christ, and he is, of course, the head of that body. But here uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, we're talking about Hebrews, just as you would uh, find it to be so according to the uh, name of the book. It's written to the Hebrews. And these are the very Hebrews uh, that James writes to and that uh, Peter writes to. So here at least we got uh, three or four books that, that uh, writers have written to the people of Israel. So it says, uh, But Christ has a son over his own house. Whose house are we? And then there is a condition there. That's why I don't understand why uh, Ironsides and... Uh, other writers will say that this is the church because the church is not conditioned I mean the church's position in Christ is not conditioned upon continuance in God's favor but here it states very plainly if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end it's verses like this that's misunderstood by the average reading public and by the average church going person in Christendom today that has created the evil or the false teaching of losing one's salvation because people say well I don't know whether I'm going to have the strength to continue they don't know that when they receive divine life uh, by way of the new birth through the working of the Holy Spirit that they receive all the necessary power to continue and continue they must it's like Marty said the other day if God has saved 100 people there's going to be 100 caught up in the rapture and that's true there'll not be one left behind but this uh, possibility of not continuing is written for the benefit of the people of Israel. Now you can imagine how many people uh, were, uh, were uh, numbered in order to be the house of God in the Old Testament times. How many people were involved in that house when our Lord Jesus Christ came to that house by way of incarnation 2,000 years ago. But they have not all continued, have they? They took the Lord Jesus Christ and they kill, uh, killed him. And the Apostle Paul tells him that their hands were defiled by taking Christ and committing him to the cross. So we find that there are many people who have ceased to be the house of God. And uh, they were, the, at least, they were the house of God in name only up until 70 A.D. And then we find this truth in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, most all of your commentators today who follow the traditional path, and of course that's 99% of uh, the clergy, we might say that they all will tell you that judgment begins with the church. And that's at the judgment seat of Christ or whatever denomination you belong to because all denominations don't belong that they're don't believe that there is a judgment seat of Christ. They believe that we all have to stand someday in judgment, and we who call ourselves fundamentalists, we look forward to the time when we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, at which time we will either receive rewards or suffer loss of a reward, according to our faithfulness since the day we were saved. But there are many denominations who do not believe that. They believe that there is a general resurrection, and, and, and the general judgment. And after the general resurrection, when all people stand before God as sheep and goats, and God is going to separate all of these raised people, and he'll see some to be sheep and others to be goats. The goats are the lost, and the sheep are the saved. They get that from the 25th chapter of the book of uh, Matthew. But that has nothing to do with the general resurrection and the general judgment. That's the sad part of it. 
And so a lot of people do not believe that they are saved and they will never believe that they are saved until they stand before God in judgment. They don't know now whether they will be a sheep or a goat. Now that's how I was raised. I was raised to believe that sort of thing. Now you can understand why I was happy to get saved out of that. But there's a lot of religions in the world that uh, people have a reason to be uh, happy to have been saved from because there's a lot of untruth in the world today. This house of God in verse 17 is not the church. It is not the body of Christ. We are not the house of God if we continue. It is not based on any condition uh, that's connected with our ability to hold on faithfully to the end. That's not it at all. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it begin, first begin at us, that's the people of Israel, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? You have to remember that the gospel of God is a general term, and we find that that term is used for any gospel in any dispensation that God has ever revealed himself to the sinner, uh, and we find that it was up to them to have accepted Christ according to the day and times when that message was, was uh, being preached, and if they believed it, they were born of God. All right, now that's verse 7, and uh, we might say here in verse 7 that we have a picture not only of 70 A.D. Now connect those three verses together, 7, 12, and 17. They are not only a picture of 70 A.D., which took place within 10 years after Peter was even writing this particular letter, but it's also a picture of the times of tribulation. So if you read it all now, in view of the tribulation that's to come, you can see in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. That's going to be the tribulation which will be at the end of uh, Israel's last days. And when they get to the end of Israel's last days and the Lord Jesus Christ comes from heaven and shows himself to be the coronated king of Israel and the king of all nations, we find then that uh, uh, that will be the end of all things for Israel and it will be the beginning of a new nation that uh, will have committed to them the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, Beloved, think of not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. If you want to read about the fiery trial, you have to go in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 13 would be a good chapter to read. You will find that Satan will use every type of disillusionment that he's capable of mustering together. He will deceive and deceive like he's never deceived before. And there's going to be an antichrist in the world, one who will be opposed to the person of Christ and yet who will be accepted as the Messiah of the world. And naturally he will be a false Messiah and he will demand that everyone have a mark upon their forehead or in their hand before they can buy or sell. There will be no business, there will be no eating, nothing but starvation for, the, for those who refuse the mark of the beast. And then when you go into verse 17, for the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And of course, uh, the times of tribulation is God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. Only in a small way, we might say, have the words of Israel when they said at the cross, his blood be upon us and upon our children, in a very small way has this been fulfilled at 70 AD. Only in a very small way do we see another fulfillment in the time of the Holocaust in Germany in 1942. And there's going to be a much bigger way in which God is going to 
uh, wreak havoc upon the people of Israel because they have with their guilty hands taken the Lord Jesus Christ and consigned him to the cross. And that's reserved for them in the times of tribulation. If they think that 70 AD was hard on them or if the time of the Holocaust was difficult for them, what must they think after they have passed through the awful times of tribulation such as never will be in the world again. That's the greatest of the fiery trials that God has ever imposed upon that particular nation. All right, then we get into verse 8 and uh, verses 7 to 9 or the last part of verse 7 where it says, uh, Be sober and watch unto prayer and above all things have fervent love among yourselves. He's only telling them how to behave among themselves in order that... Uh, if people might be able to see that there is some reality among a few of them, even though they're very few in number, they are to show their Christian spirit. And when I say Christian, I say it in the same sense in which we have it in four, chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, talks about suffering as a Christian. Remember, they were Christian not because they had accepted a Christian gospel, not because they had accepted a Christian message, they were a Christian because Peter went to them and talked to them about Christ. And as soon as the Apostle Paul was saved, he spent some time talking about Christ as being raised from the dead. <clears throat> and these Jews who believed the message of the amnesty at the mouth of Peter, we find that they were Christ followers. Christianos is what they called them in the Roman government, under the Roman government. And all the rest of them, of course, were Kaiserianos. And that was something different. They were worshippers of, of the emperor. And only this handful of Jews became worshippers of Christ. And therefore, they were called Christianos, which is a Greek term for the, uh, uh, for the word Christian. And that's why, always remember this. Now, I'm, I, the, the uh, people who believe that the church started at Pentecost, the traditionalists, they're going to throw this up to you in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, that those Jews were Christians, and they were Jews saved at Pentecost, so Pentecost must be the beginning of the church. And you don't have to believe a thing of that at all. They were called Christians only by the Apostle Peter in this particular part of the Bible, and that was simply because they too were followers of Christ, but they were followers of Christ for a different purpose than the purpose for which we have become followers of Christ. We have followed him as our Savior and our risen Lord and risen head of the body, the church, the body of Christ, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. These words are not true in relation to Israel's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. They followed him according to Peter's message because he would soon return and set up his kingdom as the greater son of David in Palestine and of course their re continued rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ has only postponed that so that God could not fulfill that aspect of the promise made in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 4. Now we find how these people are to live in view of the fiery trial that's going to try them, in view of the time when the house of God will be subject to judgment, in view of the time when it would be Israel's last days as far as her relationship to God is concerned, as a nation. Then when you get into verses 10 and 11, it says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, there were some, of course, among those, among the remnants who were saved, uh, and uh, they were living among the Jews in these uh, Gentile territories, but God had given them the ability to become stewards of the, uh, of the manifold grace of God. And God had given them the equipment to be good stewards. And that's the word that's used here, good stewards. They could all be good stewards according to the grace that God had given to them in order to minister uh, according to uh, the gift that God has given. They could all be good stewards. And he wants them to continue to be good stewards stewards, even though he is talking about the last times, or the judgment of the house of God, and so on. And uh, we find that God had supplied this remnant with the gifts needed to be good stewards, doing all to the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only through Christ that God can be glorified, and that they had the ability to minister it all to their fellow Jews, and to each other as, as fellow believers among this uh, remnant. They were to do it with God's glory in view at all times, and they were not to be protesters. You know, we have so many people today becoming protesters. I know some Christians who for a little while have become protesters because they thought it was a proper thing if you were dissatisfied with something that the government is doing. It's far better for us to acquiesce for the time being because we're not living in our world. This world is not our home. We don't belong here. We are strangers here. And the less we have to say, the less protesting we do against the things that are generally accepted and simply pray for the authority in Washington, D.C. and trust that God will give them uh, the, uh, the mind and the wisdom to act according to the need. And we do know that God is going to allow things to happen in this world because one thing he is seeking to do, and that is to bring Gentiles to a knowledge of the fact that these are the times of the Gentiles. Christ is not on the throne. He is in heaven. He's not on the throne that belongs to him, which would be in Palestine on the throne of David. Everything is out of order today. And why protest against an order that's got to be out of order at all times? There's a lot of things I don't like in the United States of America, but we go on unprotesting, rather praying, and rather showing the grace of God and the variegated grace of God, which I think is, thought is the connection there in the usage of the term manifold grace of God. There are so many graces to be displayed. There are so many ministries to minister, and all must be done to the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Now that word strange comes from the same word from which we get the word foreign. It's a foreign thing. It is something they can't comprehend. They can't, make, uh, they can't justify the existence of that type of a trial that God is allowing to come on uh, in their lives. In fact, they are not connecting God with a trial at all. I wonder sometimes how many people are connecting God with the trial that Ethiopia is going through today. We don't know why God is allowing that thing to happen there. We don't know what privileges they've had in the past, what responsibilities they've had in the past, what privileges they turned their back upon, what responsibilities they refused to take. We don't know just exactly how much gospel that area has had at some time or another. And after all, don't we read according to Romans chapter 1, 
that God had given up the Gentile for a couple of thousand years simply because the parents, our forebears, way back in Abraham's time, rejected the word of God that was being preached to them. And we have had to pay the price of it because at least through the first 2,000 years of Israel's history, God was not dealing with a Gentile nation. And all were going to a Christless eternity. And God was allowing that to happen. But God had a segment of people in the world which were the people of Israel, God's chosen people, and they were living in Palestine, and he promised them that not a single disease of Egypt would come upon them. They would never know hunger. They would never know thirst. They would never know anything that the world is tasting of today as long as they kept the conditions of fellowship with themselves by obeying the word, believing the word, and carrying out the word to the best of their ability. And that's the only people on the face of the earth who... Uh, to whom God made such promises that no sickness would befall them. They would live to ripe old ages. They would have to die, of course, but they would live to ripe old ages. And when men died at the age of 35 and 40, they died prematurely because their whole life was yet ahead of them. But for some punishment that God brought to bear upon them, they were removed because they were guaranteed. Now, a lot of people overlook that fact that God had special promises of longevity for the people of Israel, he had special promises of keeping them from the sicknesses that harassed the nations around about, especially the Egyptians. And we find that in spite of all of that, like I mentioned this morning, Second Kings and Second Chronicles will give you a history of their propensity to sin and turn their back upon God in spite of all of his promises. And that's the reason why in the world today we don't have an answer for why is God doing this, why is God doing that, but God is allowing it. Don't forget that. God is behind the scene. He could stop this thing in the Ethiopian 24 hours. He could stop it within the next hour if he so chose. But who are they to expect that God should alleviate the pressure from them? We are no better than they, however. But has there been more response on our part? Is that one reason why God is going along with us in America? We are getting worse and worse ourselves. We are becoming more profligate. All you have to do is read the newspaper and see what we are possible of doing, capable of doing. We are like the heathen of Rome. And we are getting worse and worse. Homosexuals and lesbians and everything else. And the excuse is, it's the way of life that they have chosen. It's sinful. We have to moralize. But we don't dare to moralize in politics. We don't dare to moralize when we are dealing with people publicly and governmentally. And for this reason, we uh, have to allow these things to go on. But God is tired and he's fed up with a lot of things that's going on. And there is no promise at all during the whole dispensation of grace that God is going to be specially good to the Gentile world. We can thank God that he has opened the door of repentance or of grace to the Gentile world and you and I have entered that door, but how many have not entered and how many nations haven't had the opportunity of entering, but they have not entered and we pay the price along the road. I'm not saying anything about how they are to be taken care of in Ethiopia, but I'm only saying that while it's a sad thing to behold, and you probably saw it on Channel 10 this evening, you have to admit that God is behind it. He is allowing it just as he allows death and suffering among some of his choice saints. Some of those who are saved by the grace of God going through ter uh, some terrible years of pain and suffering and so on. He allows it 
But what will glory be after we've had a taste of those few moments of terrible suffering in this world? Because eternity is eternity and it is forever. Now here we find that Israel has to face some strange thing and nothing is stranger than to have Rome come against her under the generalship of Titus. And Titus comes in and he, and he, he takes over the city and we find that the houses are, are and, and the, uh, everything is destroyed. We find that they go into the temple and destroy the temple. So the center of Judaism has been destroyed and God has allowed it. There are a lot of Jews probably who are saved under Peter's preaching. They might say, well, I just can't quite understand it. If God is our God, why is he allowing all this thing to happen? Well, there's a lot that God see, saw among the people of Israel that a lot of Jews didn't see in their behavior toward God. And God has a way of punishing and God has a way of punishing today. Don't forget that. God is not mocked for whatsoever we sow, we reap. Always remember that. You can't make fun of God. You can't do something and say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter much. I'm saved forever. It does matter the way we live. And that's one reason why one thing the Apostle Peter continues to push, and that is the fact that their lives must be uh, a, a showing of the grace of God in their lives not, pro or not protesting but acquiescing I think acquiescing is the right word as far as our attitude and our spirit is concerned if we see things we don't like acquiesce God is behind the scene and always remember that alright then when we get into verse 13 it says but rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings now who is it that's allowing the sufferings at 70 AD? Who will it be that will send or allow the Antichrist to take the place of Christ in the future tribulation? It is the Lord Jesus himself. He knows that he is the one who is actually sending to the people of Israel that which is their due. And whatever happened in 70 AD was right. It was a good judgment in God's estimation. It was what Israel uh, was worthy of receiving at the hand of God. Now that may sound harsh, but it isn't. It's according to facts. Now, they say, what Peter is saying, you put up with it. You suffer along with those people. But you minister according to the divine ability that's been given you to minister. Continue to minister. Continue to show the new man that's, that has arisen out of your life by your acceptance of Christ. You've been born again. Now show that. And don't be protesting, but be an acquiescer instead. And then you will be able to rejoice because you know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has suffered and is suffering in 70 A.D. I believe if anyone suffered over, over uh, 70 A.D., it was the Lord Jesus himself for the very thing that he was allowing struck very deeply into his own heart. Those were his people that were, being, that were suffering in 70 A.D. Those are his people who in the future will be going through the great tribulation. And what sorrows will come out of that tribulation? All you have to do is read about uh, the, uh, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament times in the minor prophets. And you will see there will be days of darkness and the Lord goes through all that darkness as though he is the only one who is experiencing all of this suffering and so on. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ had personal feelings uh, in the experience that Israel went through because they were the house of God and he was bringing the house of God to an end not because he wanted to but because they did not deserve continuance for a couple of thousand years and he suffered 
And if they are willing to suffer during that experience, they are just becoming sufferers along with the Lord Jesus. So the word to them is rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed when he comes personally to this earth. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. What a wonderful chapter this is. It has to do with the second coming. It does not have to do with the church. Neither does Matthew 25 have anything to do with the church. There isn't a chapter that has to do with the church in the whole book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 24 and we find that at verse 29 we find two or three verses that are important. We're thinking about the coming of Christ and the glory that should follow. It says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, now that tells you when, that's after the tribulation. That's not after 70 AD, but this is after the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Can you imagine how much fear and fright that's going to have upon the populace of the world, especially upon the people of Israel? And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. Now that's the glory that he's talking about. It's not the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has received as being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That's not the glory. We have that now with us, the body of Christ. This is the future glory of Christ when it's going to be revealed at his second coming when he comes personally, physically, visibly to this earth of ours, to the nation of Israel. Verse 14 says, If ye be reproached, now I'm in First Peter chapter 4, If ye be, be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So always be ready to be reproached for the name of Christ. But make sure that if you are reproached, it's not self-reproachment or, you, or you're not the cause of that particular reproach other than the fact that you have boldly testified to the Lordship of, of Christ and the Saviorhood. So if you are reproached for anything, let it be done in the name of Christ. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody as other at, in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. We can make an application to us, of course, but you have to remember he's talking to these Hebrews, and these Hebrews have the privilege of showing and of demonstrating very loudly and clearly at the time of these, uh, the end of Israel's relationship uh, at 70 A.D., and we find it at the end of the times of tribulation, which is still off in the future, we find that they have the opportunity of, uh, of living uh, like those who are followers of Christ. They will be followers of Christ as King. We are followers of Christ as Savior and Lord and Head of the Body. Always remember that. We are followers of the same person. And that's what makes them followers of Christ or Christianos, as they were called back 
in the culture of Rome and as far as we are called are, are concerned well the name Christian is only used uh, three times I think that's all it's in the scripture and we find brethren is a good uh, use a good word and that covers the sisters as well apparently but uh, we find that it's just wonderful to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and that's quite sufficient for us in verse 17, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And while I showed you what the house was in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Of course, things are going to be terrible. And when God begins to deal with Israel, and he's done it in 70 AD, he's dealt with Israel very severely under Hitler, and he will continue to deal very severely in the future in the time of tribulation. But this is another reference of those two particular times. If God righteously judges the favored nation, how severely will he not judge those who are strangers to God and to God's grace? Look how severely he judges the nation of Israel. Look how severely he judged them just in our own uh, lifetime. And I refer to 1942. That was a terrible thing. I don't know if you have any memory of those things, but I remember seeing the uh, pictures in the newspapers of the flat cars and of the uh, railroad cars just loaded with dead bodies taken from the gas furnaces and so on. Well, that's enough on that. But my, the, the, the terrible suffering that they had to go through. And some of them undoubtedly were believers, just a few, very few, but some of them were believers. But if they had a Jewish name or related to a Jew, uh, off they were taken. And that's a very sad thing. Now, if God righteously judges those people, his favored nation to that extent, to what extent will he judge those who don't know Christ, who are strangers to God and to God's grace, who have had the opportunity especially of knowing Christ as Savior and have rejected the opportunity? We know that there is a judgment ahead. We read of a judgment this morning that there is one that's coming. The people of Israel who have died knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior in 70 AD, we find that as far as they are concerned, they're going to be raised in the first resurrection. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, please. Revelation chapter 20. It has two wonderful subjects there, and the first part of that chapter has the subject of the first resurrection. And the last part of Revelation chapter 20, we find, or Revelation chapter 19, I've been saying 20 all the while, it's Revelation 19. Uh, am I right on that now? No, Revelation 20, I'll have to go back again. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20. All right, and beginning at verse 4. Now this is going to take place uh, prior to the millennial reign. Now that will make itself plain as we read verse 4. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Those are Jews who were beheaded for the witness of the Lord Jesus during the awful time of tribulation that we've been talking about which would be several years in duration. And for the word of God in which had not worshipped the beast neither his image neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So their resurrection is not a general one. All the world is not raised at this particular time. This is a resurrection that takes place prior to the millennial reign. 
so that when these people are raised in the first resurrection as saved people, they will be raised to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be King of Kings, and they will have a portion in the reign of our Lord Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Their reward apparently will be that they will be given some place in the government of Christ during that millennial reign. And it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now the first resurrection is not the rapture. Always remember that. Our resurrection is not included in Israel's resurrections. They were told always that there would be a resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. It takes the book of Revelation to show that there will be a thousand years between those two. But it takes the Apostle Paul to show us that our resurrection is part of a mystery, something that's never been revealed. And therefore our resurrection is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be be raised. (laughs) It sounds uh, rather uh, queer to me right now. I'm going to... We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump and so on. Now that's a resurrection only for the church, the body of Christ. And it's given to the Apostle Paul to reveal that resurrection. It's not just before the millennium. It's not the one after the millennium. But it's at the end of our time on this earth when the Lord Jesus Christ will come in the clouds of the air, not all the way to the ground as he will to the people of Israel in his so-called second coming. And when he comes in the clouds of the air, he'll catch us to be with himself, and we shall be changed in a moment of time, and all the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we who are alive shall be changed, and together in a moment of time we'll meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. That's not a word of prophecy other than what the prophet, the Apostle Paul, tells us about. All right, now, when we go on past this, it says, uh, well, it says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's not the church. The church is not in that at all. We go up to be with him in what we call the translation or the rapture. Now, the rest of it. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. See, now he is in prison for a thousand years just to give the people of the Gentiles uh, nations who will be in that millennial reign no excuse whatever for not coming to full surrender to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ because Satan will not be on hand to carry on his devices as he is today. And we are not ignorant of his devices, the scripture says. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Now the beast and the false prophet were thrown in prior to the millennial reign. But for 1,000 years you see them there still. They are perfectly alive. You have a lot of theologians today telling you that the unsaved do not raise in a future resurrection because they die and cease to exist from the time their bodies are interred in the earth. And that's contrary to the word of God. These two, the false beast and the prophet, they are alive after being 1,000 years in that prison house. 
And then it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now here's another judgment. This is the second judgment now in verse 11, second resurrection. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now the, the other books where it says, and the books were opened, God keeps books on all of us. And every unsaved person that goes through the millennium in their graves and are made to stand in the second resurrection will face books and those books are God's accounts in which he establishes beyond a shadow of a doubt without any question of honesty or anything else he establishes or he sets in those books the life of the individual all the opportunities all the responsibilities what they have turned down and what they live for and everything else and shows them definitely that they are there and justifiably stand before God to face the judgment of what? Well, that we find in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There is no such thing as a general resurrection and a general judgment. There is a first resurrection for saints or for the just. There is a second resurrection for the unjust or for the unsaved. There will be a judgment of believers at the judgment seat of Christ for members of the body of Christ. We find that there will be a judgment of the unconverted at the end of the millennial reign and we find then they will all be cast into the lake of fire. And the Bible says about that in Revelation chapter 14, that the fire never goes out and uh, there will be tremendous suffering throughout all eternity. Well, our time is almost up. Let's hurriedly go through verse 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, well, we know that it's with great difficulty anybody is saved. Now, maybe you don't like that until I explain it. We know that as far as Job, uh, not Job, but Lot was concerned, he was saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what kind of a price did Sodom and Gomorrah pay for the deliverance of Lot? They were burned. God destroyed the two cities with fire. They were exceedingly sinful. They were the lesbians and the homosexuals of an early day. And that's God's estimation of that particular sin. It's not a way of life with God. It's a sinful expression. Well, so with great difficulty, he was saved. We find that the people of Israel is in Egypt, and before God sent judgment upon them, he gave them ten plagues, and these ten plagues tormented them in order that they might see that God was still on the throne and capable of delivering even the Egyptians if they would accept the deliverance. And with great difficulty, God saved the nation of Israel. And that's how it goes. What about us today? We say we're saved in a moment of time. Yes, but have you ever stopped to think of the unceasing representation that we have in the Holy Spirit and in the person of Christ, two divine intercessors that go to bat for us, if you'll excuse that expression, if they go to bat for us at the least sign of sin in your life and mine, and they do all they possibly can in order to keep us from our self-appointed way and our shameful kind of a life that would degrade the gospel of God's grace 
and bring shame to the person of our Lord Jesus. Think of what's going on right now, this moment, in order that this small company might remain saved in the sight of God, according to God. There they are, carrying on their work of intercession, always beholding our lives, yearning over us and doing what they possibly can through the word to speak to our hearts and lives so that we will not go on in our self-appointed ways. So if, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. That's the best you can do. But always remember that salvation or Christianity is not something passive, it is active. And that's why it says, in well-doing. Let's do what we can to help the other one to see the truth of God. Let's do what we can to present the gospel of God's grace to the unsaved and so on. And therefore it says, in well-doing. But we commit the saving or the keeping of our souls into his hands. And uh, we know that uh, it's in safe hands when it's with him. So that's the injunctions, that's the kind of uh, message that the Apostle Peter would give those Hebrews. We can see there's quite a lot of application there that's, uh, we, that we can accept for our own uh, lives and for our own conduct. So until we get into chapter 5, may the Lord bless this part of his word to us for his name's sake.